something that I think a lot of people have in common is the desire for a good night's sleep. We see men and women in mattress and pillow commercials, and they look so comfortable. And they make falling asleep look so easy. But for some, we know it's not that easy. According to the American Sleep Association, somewhere between 50 and 70 million U.S. adults have a sleep disorder. So that means, if you just include those people, maybe you're one of those people, if you just include that group, and doubtless many outside of that group, many people have gone to bed over and over again, hoping for a good night's sleep, but they've found it to be a kind of elusive reality that only a few, the carefree few, only they get to enjoy. That's how it can feel sometimes. Some people suffer with insomnia for so long that when it begins to get dark outside, they dread the night because they just know what they're in for. They're going to want to fall asleep and they can't fall asleep and they begin to dread the night. Now, in my opinion, a common culprit that is behind the issue of sleeplessness, oftentimes, not all the time, is worry. Now, sometimes it could be just straight out-and-out fear. It could be fear of a specific thing. I'm scared this is going to happen. And it's very specifically directed, and it's a fear. And sometimes it's kind of this unsettledness, this anxiety, this undercurrent of uneasiness that's just there. And if you were to ask a person why they feel anxious or uneasy, they wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you. They just feel uneasy. They feel on edge for some reason. Now, when you look at a place like the American Sleep Association, you will find some steps that they recommend for a good night's sleep, some of which, not all, but some of which I would agree with. But one step that you will not find on the American Sleep Association website, and that which I would argue is most needful, is a truth that's communicated very clearly here in Psalm 4. And in a place like Psalm chapter 4, verse 8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. If you grab onto that truth and the implications behind that, what that means for trusting God and the sovereignty of God, that will help you more than high-dose melatonin and a weighted blanket. That's what you want to grab onto. There's something behind that. I don't just want to say Psalm 4.8. It's not just about saying it. If I say Psalm 4.8 enough when I'm in bed, then maybe I will fall asleep. Probably won't work. Didn't work for me. I would try that. I'm like, that's my verse. I'm going to keep saying I'm going to meditate on that till I fall asleep. And I found myself awake by my meditating. Like, I just can't go to sleep because I'm still meditating on Psalm 4.8. I need to go to sleep now. If it works for you, then you could do that. But if you grab onto the truth that's underlying that statement, I will lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It speaks to God's sovereignty and it speaks to His benevolent oversight of His people. Now, Psalm 3 has been referred to as a morning psalm, and Psalm 4 has been referred to as an evening psalm, at least by some. And one of the reasons that Psalm 4 is referred to as an evening psalm is because of the verse I just quoted to you, Psalm chapter 4, verse 8, but that's not the only reason. You look at Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, and we'll get there shortly, and you see that David speaks of being on your bed. So Psalm 4 is often referred to as an evening psalm. Now, if you were to look at the psalm and see some of the issues that David and others are going through, you could apply it to yourselves like this. We could apply it to ourselves. 
If you've ever struggled with going to sleep because people were maligning you and talking about you behind your back and the situation was unresolved, then you might find some specific help and encouragement in this psalm. If you've ever laid on your bed and you were just so frustrated and angry about something that happened and you struggled to find sleep because of your anger, this psalm may have some specific instruction for you. If you have ever felt like all of the ways in which God might have good imported into your life were suddenly blocked off, this psalm very clearly has something to say to you. But even if you don't fall into those specific categories, this is profitable instruction from God for His people, and I trust that you will find it to be so from verse 1 through verse 8, and including the superscript. And a quick side note, by the way, because this is what can happen. So I just was talking about what David said in Psalm 4, verse 8, I will lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And some of you may go home tonight, and you're like, okay, now if there's ever, ever a night when I'm going to get a good night's sleep, it's going to be tonight. Because I just heard Psalm 4 preach, I'm going to think on that, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to get a good night's sleep, and maybe you don't. Maybe you've been getting a good night's sleep for a whole bunch of days, and all of a sudden you don't get a good sleep tonight. I am not promising you a good night's sleep. Because I know God can use insomnia as well. And if you need to be reminded of that, you just open to Esther chapter 6. And you see how God used the sleeplessness of a king to be the precursor for Mordecai's honoring, for the Jews' deliverance, and for the hanging of Haman. So don't think just because you read Psalm 4.8 that God cannot use sleeplessness. There will be prayers that you pray in the middle of the night that God is going to use in ways that far transcend your understanding in this moment. But let's make our way into the psalm. First, we'll consider the superscript. Unlike the third psalm, where the superscript gives us insight into the context in which David was writing, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, we don't have any specific insight to the context here. The superscript reads, To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Now, some suggest, because this is Psalm 4, which comes after Psalm 3, and Psalm 3 had a context of Absalom's rebellion, some people suggest, well, maybe this is still during the time of Absalom's rebellion. They would look at Psalm 4 and they would say, well, you see that David is still being slandered. People who are with him and probably fighting alongside of him, they are angry in verse 4, but maybe it's others who are angry in verse 4. We'll talk about that when we get there. And there are people who are in a state of despair, as we're going to see in verse 6. Granted, But with that being said, I think Gerald Wilson is right when he has noted that this psalm is more, quote, generally realized, a more generally realized plea for deliverance that is easily adapted to a variety of concerns and settings. I say that to say the context could be Absalom's rebellion, but we cannot say that definitively. And perhaps that's profitable for us in this way because we can adapt it to a variety of settings, perhaps in David's life, and doubtless we can adapt it to our own lives where applicable as well. Now, in this superscript, we also gain a little bit of insight into the worship that took place before the tabernacle of meeting. This is interesting. David, who's the author of this psalm, as we see in the superscript, he wrote the psalm and he gave it to the chief musician. The chief musician was essentially the music director. He would be the one responsible for the, whether it be the the instrumentalists or the way the music was going to be played, he was the music director in the... uh, in the Old Covenant time of David. Also, we find out that there was supposed to be a specific musical setting for this song. It was to be accompanied by stringed instruments, likely the harps and lyres. 
Now, there's so much that can be said about the music ministry of the Old Covenant. I want to say a little bit about it, and I think it'll help us appreciate what we participate in every time we come together and sing to the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 31 and 32, we read the following. Now, these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. Their names are listed later on in the chapter. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. So immediately you can get the idea that music ministry in Old Covenant Israel was a big deal. How do you know it was a big deal? Well, one of the reasons that you know it was a big deal is because it wasn't simply David's idea, it was God's design. And then you had David specifically overseeing and appointing people to positions of service who would serve in the music ministry in Israel. You also find that it wasn't done haphazardly. It was to be done skillfully and in order. So when you think of music ministry, you want to at least have those three things in mind, right? This isn't like TEFC's design for an entertaining time of worship. It's God's design for His people, right? The New Testament church is to join in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And throughout the whole Old Testament, or great, a great portion of the Old Testament, we have a number of illustrations that speak to the kind of celebrations of worship that would take place in Israel and that God expects for us to have in some measure as we gather together. Exuberance and joy and singing and all of these things would happen in Old Covenant Israel. And if they celebrated the way they did, how much more should we celebrate under the new covenant? It's just amazing to think. And granted, we may not have all the pieces that the old covenant um, Levites had during David's administration because they had a lot going on. You see a lot of places in the Old Testament, all of the amazing instruments and the, the details that went into the music ministry, and it's amazing. But they should not exceed us in joy because we have exceedingly great and precious promises to celebrate under the new covenant. But nonetheless, it was God's design. It was something that was so important that David oversaw it. And it wasn't to be done haphazardly. It was to be done with skill. And again, music ministry did not begin in David's time. It began long before that. Um, with that being said, um, let us proceed from the psalm's superscript to the psalm's content. Uh, this psalm, as I've noted, has been called an evening psalm. But it's also interesting in that it's one that was, that was directed to both God and men. We'll see that as we get into it. We begin in Psalm 4, verse 1, where we read, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. So David begins the psalm with earnest but brief petitioning of God. Hear me when I call. In the Hebrew text, the verse begins with the expression, when I call, perhaps placing emphasis on David's calling out to God. When I call. Here David identified God as the God of his righteousness. He says, O oh God of my righteousness. So with respect to his enemies and their slander, we'll see that in verse 2, David knew that he was in the right. God was the God of his righteousness. And David knew he was in the right. 
And he appears to be looking to God, who was the source of his righteousness, to vindicate him. That's all bound up in that identification. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David perceives himself to be in the right. You'll see in verse 2, people are slandering him and they're saying lies about him. But he's appealing to the one who he esteems to be the source of his righteousness and he's looking for God to vindicate him. Those are all bound up in that identification. David expected and appealed to God as the one who is, to use language from Derek Kidner, the upholder of justice. And just as a quick aside, I think it's worth noting that vindication in the final analysis will come to all of God's people. You see that implicitly um, referenced in Luke chapter 18, verse 7. God will avenge His elect who cry out to Him day and night. It's just a matter of when it happens. For some... They'll receive vindication in the here and now like David did so often. But for others, their ultimate vindication will come at the resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous. And if that's the case for some, they're not in bad company because Jesus was vindicated, if you will, through the resurrection. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, He was demonstrated, declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness, through the resurrection of the dead. So David's looking for God to vindicate him. And I just want to remind you that in the final analysis, God will vindicate all of his people. When David wrote, you have relieved me in my distress, now he's looking back. So he's praying in the moment, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness, but now he's looking back. You have relieved me in my distress. That is informative and instructive for us in itself. So often in prayer, we could just be caught up in the moment that we forget what God has done for us in the past. So David's looking back, and the language that he uses here may paint a rather interesting word picture. When he says this word, relieved, you have relieved me, it's a Hebrew word that can mean to make room for. And when he says the word distress, you have relieved me in my distress, it's an interesting word, and you look how it's used in the Old Testament, and it could speak of narrow or tight places. So maybe part of the imagery that's being connoted right here is something like this. Lord, you have relieved me in my distress. In times past, you have brought me from tight spots to open places. You've brought me from a place where I felt like the walls were closing in and there was no way out. And you brought me to an open place of freedom and deliverance. I would argue here, although David isn't using the typical words that we would associate with the attributes of God, right? That God is omnipresent, that He is omniscient, that He is omnipotent, that He is infinite, and so on. We do see a little bit more of who God is through the language that David uses here. God is the rescuer of His people. You have relieved me. It's who you are. It's what you do. You rescue your people. So having looked back upon previous help that God has given him, David appealed for present help. Yet again, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. So note, David's not looking for what he thinks he's earned or deserved. He's looking for mercy. He's looking for mercy. Have mercy on me. I would argue this also implies his helpless state. He needs God's mercy because God's not just like one of many options that he has. Like God is the only option that he has. And he needs God to come through. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. So he's in this desperate state and it doesn't leave him, as we're going to see in the psalm, it doesn't leave him hopeless or in a place of despair. 
He's prayerful and hopeful because Yahweh has brought him out of tight spaces before and into open places. Do you know if you've been brought through things time and time again by God, you can expect for God to bring you through things again until He brings you home. And that's the ultimate work of deliverance. (laughs) In one way or another, He will bring His people through. It may not be exactly the way we picture. It may not be exactly what we want. But He has a way of preserving His people, bringing them through and out of trials and out of ditches. And ultimately, that ultimate deliverance that's coming that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 4 is that deliverance that is that last great deliverance when we are safely conveyed into the presence of our Savior Jesus Christ. So twice in the opening verse, and I want to call your attention to this for a little bit of pastoral application. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Hear me when I call. Look at the end of verse 1. Hear my prayer. Now we know that in a very literal sense, David knew that God could hear every word that he was praying. There's nothing wrong with hearing aids. If you have a hearing aid, that's great. I'm so thankful for the advancements in technology that we can have things like that. God doesn't need one though. (laughs) But David is saying again, hear me, hear me, hear me when I call, hear my prayer. David knew that God could hear everything that he said, and David knew that God knew the words that he would speak before he even spoke them, according to Psalm 139, verse 4. So not only could God hear David, God knew what David was going to speak, because his understanding is infinite, Psalm 147, verse 5, and because he knows the words that are on our tongues before we even speak them, Psalm 139, verse 4. Yet here he is, and he's asking the omniscient God to hear him, and he's saying it twice. So what David is saying here is more akin to something like this. Please respond to my prayer with intervention. It's more akin to saying, please attend to my desperate situation. That's what David's saying here. And I think that's instructive for us because David didn't want to just pray. He wanted God to hear him. Now, if you find yourself showing up in the place of prayer... And you say, you know what, this is important. I see Jesus in Luke chapter 5. He often withdrew to solitary places and prayed. And if you find in your Christian life, by the grace of God, you are walking in the footsteps of your Savior and you have made quiet time with the Lord in prayer a commitment and you are there and you are showing up and you are praying to the living God. One of the pitfalls that can happen if you're showing up. Now, some of these things don't happen unless you show up. But if you do show up to that place of prayer, one of the pitfalls that can happen is you could feel satisfied with having prayed and leave. And it's kind of of inconsequential whether God heard you because you prayed. And you feel better because you did what you were supposed to do as a Christian. That can happen. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, and I prayed and I feel good about my prayer. And I think we learned something here from David. David is interested in God hearing his voice. And I find this as instructive for my life and instructive for all of us. Let's be sure that when we go to prayer, that our hearts and minds and our lips are lined up together. It's one of the problems with vain repetition. It's not the only problem. There's a lot of problems with vain repetition. But one of the problems that can happen with vain repetition in prayer is that your mouth could be saying one thing while your mind is thinking something else. Like you're saying these things to God, but you're thinking about something different. And what we see here in David, implied in his language, implied in his desperation, is this desire for God to hear him. And all I'm saying is this for us. I think this could be an impetus for us for a kind of spiritual tune-up whereby we ensure that 
the engine of prayer, which includes our heart and lips, is functioning rightly. We want to honor God with our lips, but we want to make sure by the grace of God our hearts are not far from Him. In the place of prayer, and I think David models what it's like to have lips and heart aligned together. And that brings us to verse 2, when now David goes from speaking to God, but now he's going to direct what he says to men. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. Interesting that Psalms can go from horizontal or from vertical to horizontal. That's what we see here. David's directing his words towards those who were maligning him. First question was this. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory into shame? The language very literally in the Hebrew there, you sons of men or O sons of men, could be rendered more literally as sons of man or sons of a man. The reason why I call attention to that is because it's possible, given the way similar language is used in Psalm 49 verse 2 and Psalm 62 verse 9, David may have individuals who are people of prominence in view, perhaps. So he may be looking at people who are of a high degree, who have positions of influence, and they're maligning him. Could be, given the way the words are used in other contexts. Whoever they were exactly, David puts forward the questions that he did. And the first one was, how long will you turn my glory into shame? What David is essentially saying here is, how long are you going to drag my reputation through the mud? That's essentially what he's saying. How long will you take my glory or my honor? And how long will you go pursuing to see that I am disgraced and brought into disrepute? It's possible... That David may also, as Tremper Longman notes, that David may be looking at the way in which his adversaries are undermining God's authority. And in some way, the way in which they are blaspheming, speaking slanderously about David is bringing disrepute upon the name of God. Could be, we know that in Psalm 3, David said to the Lord that the Lord was his glory. So that may be going on here as well. They don't have to be necessarily exclusive options. They could be bound up together. They were pursuing this and they showed no signs of stopping. David asked a rhetorical question, how long? The second question that he asked was, how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? The word for worthlessness here speaks to vanity. It speaks to something that's empty. How long are you going to pursue something that's empty? And falsehood speaks, as it does very clearly there, to deception. So how long are you going to pursue empty vanity? Now, most immediately in the context, it probably looked like this. They're lying about David. They are pursuing, trying to bring him into disrepute. They are pursuing, trying to bring his glory into shame. And it was a vain attempt at doing so. And they're believing empty lies and they're telling empty lies to others. That appears to be the context for this. And in this, David, I would argue, anticipated his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. David was experiencing what the Lord Jesus Christ would experience in a different way during His earthly ministry. Oftentimes in Jesus' ministry, we see His antagonists try to bring shame upon Him in one way or another. Interestingly, in John chapter 8, verse 41, His antagonists, in the midst of a conversation, say, we were not born of fornication. And when you look in the context there, they may be insinuating that Jesus was born of fornication, seeing as there was doubtless controversy that surrounded his birth, right? 
And so when they say that statement in John 8.41, they may be saying, hey, we weren't born of fornication like you were. And take the glorious event of the incarnation. And all of a sudden, if that's what they meant in that context, and I think there's good reason to think that that's what's going on there, they're trying to bring His glory to shame. What about when Jesus did miracles? Jesus did miracles that were a testimony to the reality that He was the Messiah. And then we see again antagonists saying, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So you think the glorious manifestation of the power of God through the Holy Spirit, through the Son of God, and they seek to bring that into shame. What about when Jesus was on the cross and the justice of God was being demonstrated, the love of God was being demonstrated, and His enemies and adversaries are walking by and they are mocking Him and they're reviling Him. Over and over we see the Son of God experiencing antagonists of one kind or another seeking through slanderous lies of one kind or another to bring shame upon Him. To bring shame upon Him. Mocking Him. And I just want to prepare you If you're going to be a Christian who's ready to ask to an unbelieving world the question of Psalm 4, verse 2, how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? You will likely be on the other side of mockery, a receiver of it. You will be somebody who's slandered. You will be somebody who is persecuted for Jesus' name. Jesus made that very clear to His disciples. If they persecuted Me they will persecute you also. So if you, via a gospel presentation, essentially say, how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Because that's what you're saying when you share the gospel. You're saying that there is a truth. There is, there is the truth. There is the truth from God that we can only be reconciled to God through the death of His Son, through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that all other ways to have forgiveness with God are lying vanities. You are essentially asking the question of Psalm 4, verse 2. You're saying, how long? And you're implying that it can't go on forever. God has appointed a day, according to Acts 17, when He will judge the world in righteousness through the man He has appointed. So when you are a bringer of the Gospel, it's as though you are asking that question. How long are you going to go on believing the lies that you can get to God through your good works? That you can get to God through your religious system? That you can get to God through false gods? How long will you believe those things? And you do it with gentleness and you do it with respect, but you nonetheless call out the truth. And you tell the truth of the gospel. I mean, it's amazing. I was reading um, an article last night in the Massachusetts Review of people, I believe they are Buddhists, Zen Buddhists, who had, and, and, and I don't say this in a facetious way, but it's hard to believe that these things happen, were ordaining cherry trees. Maybe it was one or cherry tree they ordained, I don't remember exactly. But we could look at that and we could say, that just, that just does not make sense. It's empty. A, a tree is, is, is a creation of God and we're thankful for that creation and we're thankful for the way it, it spews oxygen into the atmosphere and takes in carbon dioxide and so on. But it's not a living being. It, it, it's, it's not something that you ordain and you say, okay, you have been faithful in your ministry to produce oxygen and we are ordaining you. And you need to be somebody who with gentleness and respect says, I love you. And I've believed, uh, if anybody knows about weird things to believe, I'll join them and say, I know about weird things because I made up a whole bunch of stuff in my head before I came to know know Christ. And it's a lot of it's humorous. I do think it's humorous, but it's humorous because I was delivered from it. 
But I think when you are somebody who will tell the truth, you've got to be willing to confront the vanities and lies that you see around you. And you do it with respect. But that's what David's doing here. How long will you believe those things? And you're somebody who can tell other people, it's not going to go on forever. God's appointed a day when He will judge the world in righteousness through the man He has appointed. And the only way to escape God's wrath is to receive God's Son, Jesus Christ. After, um, after that comes the Selah, which again, as I noted last week, was likely a musical term, maybe introducing a kind of musical interlude or a pause. And after that, David continues writing, But know that the Lord has set apart for Himself Him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to Him. So now he gives an imperative to these sons of man. He says, but no. They needed to know something. They needed to know that their tactics were in vain. They needed to know that the Lord has set apart for Himself Him who is godly. David in this context is speaking of himself. It would have general application beyond David, but most immediately has application to David. So David is saying, and one of the reasons why they needed to know and they needed to desist and they needed to stop is because the Lord has set apart. He set apart David. The same word is used three times. The first three times that Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament, it's used to speak of the distinction that God made repeatedly in the book of Exodus with respect to Israel and Egypt. He set apart Israel from Egypt in distinct ways when you look at those examples in Exodus 8.22, 9.4, and 11.17. He provided protection for Israel, even as he brought judgment upon Egypt. Well, in like manner, God had set apart David. David was the king. David was God's anointed. But he wasn't only set apart. Notice, David said that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. Set apart for himself. That's precious language right there. David was the object of divine favor. He was marked out from among his brothers. He was Yahweh's chosen instrument. And he was chosen by God for God. New Testament Christians would do well to remember that that's true of you and I in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are chosen by God for God. You can see that very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we are told that God chose us before the foundation of the world. When you go to verse 5, you can see, and this is amazing language, He predestined His people for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Ace Auton, to Himself. Don't miss that part there. Predestined to adoption through Christ to Himself. You're not David, but you have been set apart by God for God. No matter where you are, David is in a place of shame. David is a place of disgrace, at least to some degree. But no matter where he was at every given moment, he is one who has been set apart by God and for God. And that's something that should be so precious to every New Testament Christian. No matter where you are, no matter the way in which your name is slandered, no matter the trials in which you go through, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, God loved you before the foundation of the world. And He's marked you out for Himself. And you're like, for himself? What do you mean, for himself? How do you expound upon that, George? What does that mean that he, he, that he marked me out for himself? You can say a little bit. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, you've been marked out, you've been set apart 
to the praise of the glory of His grace. I could say according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that you've been set apart according to the good pleasure of His will. I could say according to Psalm 149, verse 4, that Yahweh takes pleasure in His people. So I think there's an element of divine pleasure in the, those that God loves that He set apart for Himself. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. He loves His people. You've also been set apart for service. Look at the Apostle Paul, for instance, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. He has set you apart for service. He's also set you apart to walk in holiness. That's part of the practical outworking of your call. You can see that either explicitly said or implied, depending on the languages used in Ephesians 1.4. So God has set you apart for Himself. And the identification here, Him who is godly, refers most immediately to David in this context. The word godly that's used here, it speaks of one who is the recipient of covenantal kindness and as a result walks in godliness. It's an interesting word. It speaks of one who walks in mercy. And the implication appears to be, based upon the word that's used here, is that you've been a recipient of the loving kindness of God, and as a result, you walk in loving kindness. That's who the godly one is here. I I think that in some sense it's the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word saint. I'm not saying the word literally means the same thing, but I think it carries the same connotation. In light of this privileged relationship, David knew that the Lord would hear him. Look at the end of verse 3. The Lord will hear when I call to him. The Lord will hear when I call to him. So there were implications for what David knew about who he was to God. He didn't just stop with saying, okay, I've been set apart by God, but an implication of that is the Lord will hear me when I call to him. Now granted, again, I know David was in a unique position. He was the anointed of God, called to be king of Israel, and there are distinctions between his calling and our calling as New Testament Christians, granted. But the implication of realizing who you are in relationship to God and the connection between that and knowing God hears you, that should be similar. Because if Christians are, as the Scripture says, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, if Christians are chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, if Christians are predestined unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, Ephesians 1, 5, if Christians are chosen by God from the beginning unto salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth, the logical outworking of all of those things would be that when we cry out to God, He hears us. Well, David goes on, the instruction continues in verses 4 and 5 where we read, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Okay, one of the questions that you would have to answer when you look at this verse or these verses is who is David speaking to? Is David speaking to himself here? Is David continuing to speak to the same group that he addressed in verse 2? Is David speaking to a different group here? Maybe those who are with him and are angry about what they are suffering as a result of their identification with David. Well, first I want to say David's not speaking to himself here, though of course it would have application to him. And the reason why I say he's not speaking to himself is because the Hebrew word that's translated within your own heart is second person plural. So he's speaking to a group. That leaves us with two options. 
and in my opinion, it hinges on how the Hebrew word that's translated be angry should be identified. Hang with me for a moment to understand the options here, and then we'll get to the application. When you read in the text, verse 4, it says, be angry, you have two options in the Hebrew for that. It could be, be angry and do not sin, or it could be, tremble, stand in awe and do not sin. So you have two options here. My opinion is, if it's tremble, if that's how this is supposed to be rendered here, I would think that David is speaking to the same group that he was speaking to in verse 2, if tremble is what's being referred to here. Because I don't think David would be telling his adversaries and his enemies, be angry, adversaries, be angry at me, slander me, it's okay, but don't sin. And slandering would be sin, so be angry, but don't slander me. That just doesn't make sense to me. So I don't think he would be speaking to... Um, his enemies saying, be angry. But if he says here, this Hebrew word can mean tremble, he's telling his enemies, in light of the fact that I've been set apart by God, in light of the fact that God will hear me when I call, instead of be angry, the possibility here is that he's saying, tremble and do not sin. Tremble at the fact that you are not only waging war against God's anointed, but you're waging war against God by waging war against God's anointed. And that could be a very likely implication of what's going on here in the text. Tremble at the fact that you've set yourself upon a course of rebellion against the living God. For everyone who does not receive the grace of God in the gospel, that is a warning. Tremble. Because if you do not receive Jesus Christ as the only way to be forgiven of sins and see Him as Savior and Messiah, you are in rebellion against the living God. Tremble at that fact. And then he gives some practical application saying, essentially, stop sinning. Essentially, settle down and think about these things while you're upon your bed. In that old covenant context, offer the sacrifices that the law prescribes. That would be an implication of what he says there. And most fundamentally, put your trust in the Lord. Because if you offer the sacrifices of righteousness that the law prescribes, but your trust is not in the Lord, then it's in vain. So in that sense, if that's how the word is to be rendered, if be angry should be rendered as tremble there, then David is giving a call to repentance. However, however, it's possible, if not likely, that David is addressing a different group of people right here in verses 4 and 5. Those who were around him and with him who were experiencing persecution and they were angry about it. Like David, they were the victims of slander, and it would make sense that they were angry. So David instructs them, be angry, but do not sin. And now one of the reasons that lends itself to this interpretation is because the same exact words are used by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.26 when he quotes the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you look at the Septuagint version of Psalm 4, verse 4, the beginning, be angry and do not sin, it's word for word the exact same thing that's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.26, which would lend me to think, which would lead me to think that be angry is the proper rendering here in this context. So David is essentially telling the people in that case what Paul clearly tells the people of God in Ephesians 4.26. You could be angry. But do not sin. Paul, if you will, might even take it a step further to say, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Like, get it right. Deal with that anger. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. I just want to take a moment just to affirm anyone in this room 
who is feeling a sense of anger over some wrong or some sin that was done to you. You need to know there's a biblical category for being angry, and it's okay. You have to be very careful because what could be righteous anger can become entrenched bitterness. What starts off as righteous anger could become malice. It could become hatred. It could become those things. But I want you to know biblically, there is a place for righteous indignation. They say, I'm angry. When you see God's name blasphemed, there's a place for being angry about that. It's not that it's divorced from compassion. No, compassion's still there. But, but you hate seeing Jesus' name used as a curse word. When you see immorality, when you see abuse or theft, when you see any of these things, it's right to be angry. We'll see as we go along in the Psalter that God is angry with the wicked every day. The holy God of the universe knows what it's like to be angry at sin and sinners. So if you find yourself in a season where you are angry, here is some instruction for you. Be angry, but don't sin. And if you say, well, how do I do that? How do I, how do I make sure that my anger is not improperly portioned? How do I discern if my anger is sinful or not? Well, I would say you follow the instructions here by way of practical application. Be angry and do not sin. Look at what David says here. Meditate within your own heart on your bed and be still. It seems as though the thrust of David's instruction most immediately deals with quietness. Because you know a lot of times if you're angry, you could say things that you regret. You could write emails that you shouldn't write. You could leave voicemails you shouldn't have left because you were quick to speak. And so David's saying, be angry... But then he goes on and he says, meditate within your own heart on your bed and be still. So there's a place for just communing within your own heart and the implication will also be doubtless with the Lord too who knows your heart, who searches and tries the reins of your heart that you just kind of quietly bring it before the Lord and you think upon it in your own heart upon your bed. If you have sinned against the Lord and you say, you know, this anger was wrong, well, you offer the sacrifices of righteousness. you got that old covenant picture of just doing what the Levitical law prescribed. And for you as a New Testament Christian, that would be, again, just resting upon what Jesus Christ has done for you. You're like, I thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins. I can't tell if my anger is righteous or unrighteous at this moment. So I thank you for Jesus Christ and His blood washing me from all sin. And you put your trust in the Lord. If you're angry about a certain thing, you commit it to the Lord afresh. And you say, I trust you. I know the judge of all the earth will do right. If there have been wrongs that have not been righted, I know in the final analysis it will be. And the judge of all the earth will do right. You put your trust in Him. It's part of the instruction for New Testament Christians in Romans 12. Right? Do not avenge yourselves. Rather give place to wrath. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's New Testament thinking. It's even part of the thinking of saints who are in heaven per Revelation 6. How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood that was shed upon the earth to use language that's said of the saints who's, who, who were martyred and were under the altar in Revelation 6. There's a place for looking to God to vindicate and to bring righteous judgment. Be angry and do not sin. Of course, I would just say as a quick pastoral aside, of course you want to pray for your enemies. Right? You want to do good to those who hate you and despitefully use you. And at the same time, 
you can trust the righteous God to right wrongs in the final analysis. And there's another Selah um, that we see within, this, uh, within these verses. But that brings us to verse 6, which is a question and a prayer. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. So now David uh, appears to be speaking to a small group, or not a, small, a not so small group. There are many who say, who will show us any good? So these people were basically saying, look, the glass is half empty, probably in their minds more than half empty. And where's good going to come from? Where is good going to come from? If this was during Absalom's rebellion, it makes sense that many groups would be saying such a thing. They were wondering if there was any help for them and God because the antagonists of David were saying there was no help for him and God, Psalm 3, verse 2. And many were wondering where help would come from. Notice how David reacts to this. In this case, he doesn't give specific instruction. In this case, he offers up a prayer by way of referencing an Old Testament benediction. He says, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. So he's drawing language from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The ironic benediction, when Aaron as the high priest would pronounce a benediction upon the people of God. And so David here in this moment is saying, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Rather than answering them in this moment, he just goes to God in prayer. And what does he do? He takes a benediction that was regularly said over the people of Israel, and he says it as a prayer. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. I think this verse right here could revolutionize the way you look at benedictions at the end of a service. So if you think of like the benediction like at the end of the service as just like you know a religious like tack on to like you know a worship service like it's kind of a nice way to end with a benediction the prescription for these people who said i i don't know where good's going to come from i feel like all the roads whereby good might be imported into my life are blocked off what was the answer for them well under the inspiration of the holy spirit it was a prayed benediction that was the prescription in that moment so how might that affect you if the word for them was a benediction the ironic benediction prayed for, how might God minister to you through the benedictions that are found at the end of our morning times of worship? I think Psalm 4-6 can revolutionize the way you look at benedictions. A prayed for benediction, a prayed out benediction, was the response of David to the men around him. Now in verse 7, David essentially provides himself as an example for the despondent ones. He says, You have put gladness in my heart, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. Now again, we are immediately reminded of who God is. You don't just need a hymn to tell you that God is the giver of immortal gladness. You see He's the giver of gladness right here. David says, you have put gladness in my heart. Now word for gladness is the same word that's used in Zephaniah 3.17, which says that the Lord rejoices over His people with gladness. So the God who rejoices over His people with gladness is also the God who has access to the hearts of His people whereby He may implant gladness. You have put gladness right where it needs to be. In my heart. You go through the Scriptures and you see God can stir hearts, God can turn hearts, God can examine hearts, God gives new hearts, and God can also put gladness into the human heart. 
And you have to love. You walk through this verse, and you see that God just didn't put like a little drop of gladness. Like, you put a drop of gladness into my heart. No, no, you have put, David said, gladness in my heart. But look how he describes it. More, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. So this is a bountiful gladness. David is drawing from the imagery of the day and the agricultural society that it was when people had a bountiful harvest, when the wheat was coming and the vintage was coming and there was a lot to be gathered in. It was a time for celebration and it was a legitimate celebration. It was a legitimate earthly joy and it still is today. God bringing about what people need to live. But David looks at that and he says, you've put more joy in my heart than even they Who's the they here? Whoever they are. Then the joy that they have when their grain and their wine increase. I think it's a good reminder for us that God can give you joy despite what you have or don't have. Right? You should not think of your joy as being dependent upon your circumstances. Joy in light of outward circumstances is fine. It makes sense. So if outward circumstances are good and you're like, praise God, this is a blessing, that's good. Having joy in outward circumstances is fine. Having your joy dependent upon outward circumstances is not. And David says here, you've put joy in my heart more than in the season where their grain and their wine increased. And part of the good news of the Gospel is that for the one who has received Christ, your joy is not dependent upon your circumstances because God, the Holy Spirit, can make that fruit come forth regardless of the environment you find yourself in. These are just some verses. 2 Corinthians 7.4, Philippians 1.4, Colossians 1.11, and 1 Thessalonians 1.6. You could be in tribulation, yet rejoicing. Now, I also find this interesting because you think of how David began this psalm in verse 1. It's crying out to God. And now all of a sudden he's talking about joy here, and you have to wonder how the Holy Spirit is leading him as he's writing to go from a place of desperation. And then all of a sudden now he's recalling the joy that he has had. And now he goes to a place of peace. Speaks of a place of peace in verse 8 where we read, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now look where David ends the psalm. Did the accusers you know, vanish? No reason to think that they vanished. They're still around. They're still slandering Him. But yet He speaks of great joy. And now He speaks of great peace. I will lie down in peace and sleep for You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I don't know the mechanics of what went on in His mind. I get a glimpse of it. I think you do as we look in Psalm 4, verse 8. But what we have to know is what David knew and that's the mechanic. Even if we don't know the mechanics of how he brings about peace. Because he's able to. He is able to bring about peace in any circumstance. Think about Peter. Peter is asleep, if I remember correctly, between two guards in Acts chapter 12. And he's supposed to be brought before Herod the next morning. Not for like, you know, friendly lunch and a conversation, but to be killed. And yet there is David, I mean, there is Peter sleeping, sound asleep. How does that happen? How can you sleep in the midst of unchanged circumstances to the degree that David was so troubled that he's asking God repeatedly, hear me, have mercy on me, hear my prayer. So now, all of a sudden, how do you sleep in such a situation? Because the peace of God that surpasses understanding can guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. 
even when the circumstances are unchanged. It's like how Jesus told His disciples that in Him, they would have peace. But in this world, they would have what? Tribulation. What's the implication? You could have both at the same time. It's not necessarily one without the other. You can have tribulation and peace in the midst of the tribulation. And that's where David is right here. I will lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That logic is very sound, right? Like David knew, like, if I'm here, wherever he was, an open field, if he was in the wilderness, in the cave, I don't know, maybe his own bed in Jerusalem. I don't think that's the most likely option, but wherever he was, David's saying, I'm really as safe here as any place. Because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David didn't pretend his accusers weren't around and that his enemies weren't there. He didn't try to submerge reality beneath positivity. You know, I'm just going to say positive things. They're gone. They're gone. No, they're still there. And they're still trying to malign you and turn your glory into shame. But he saw afresh that his enemies were not in control. And neither was he. God was. And I just want to encourage you here. Don't look for peace in the wrong places. Because one of the things that can happen in the midst of trials is that you look for an escape. And you try to find peace in the wrong places. And granted, the pleasures of sin, they are temporary and they do have a, a short season to them. But it's a snare and a trap. Don't go looking for peace in the wrong places. David said, I will lie down in peace and sleep for his rationale was, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And if you know that you have the ultimate safety that has been provided for you, temporary and temporal safety, temporal safety gets put in perspective a lot more quickly. It is paramount that you understand that you have eternal safety. So if you're going to lie down and sleep in peace tonight, but you have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that peace would be a deceptive peace. You must know that you have eternal safety. And the only, eternal safe, the only way eternal safety could be found is by coming to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You run to the ark who is the Lord Jesus Christ while there is time. The door is open. One day the door will be shut, whether that's on an individual level and then, or you know, on a whole worldwide level when that day comes. But in the time that is now, hear the voice of the Lord crying out to you via the Gospel. Receive the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. To use language from Psalm 2. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow the knee. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Then you can lie down and sleep in peace because you know that you have eternal safety. And if you have eternal safety, temporal safety should be put in its proper perspective as important as it is as well. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank You for the way in which You lovingly care for Your people and the way in which throughout this life You, you constantly, through Your Word, lead and guide and through the illumination and the help of the Holy Spirit, You teach us, Lord. I pray, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name that You would help us to have our hearts and lips 
aligned all the more in prayer in the days ahead. Thank You for what You have shown us through the example of Your servant David. Thank You for David's greater Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered shame on our behalf and who was mocked and reviled and who absorbed Your wrath so that we might be forgiven. Father, thank You for setting apart us, Lord, in, who are in Christ Jesus. We know that in us, in and of ourselves, there's nothing lovely, but thank You for setting Your love upon us and help us to have greater measures of confidence that You hear us when we call, regardless of whether or not our circumstances change. Father, help those ones in this room even now who may be dealing with righteous anger. Protect them, Lord, that that righteous anger would not become a sinful anger. Help them, Father, to meet You on their bed in the middle of the night. Help them, Heavenly Father, afresh to put their trust in the Lord. Father, for those who look at their lives and would say, where is good going to come from? I just, I just don't see it. I pray that perhaps even now via the benediction, Lord, that You would lift up the light of Your countenance upon them. And they would see the glory of Christ and who You are to them. And they might be strengthened and encouraged in Christ. And Father, I pray that You would help us, Lord, to know that wherever we are, we are not alone. We who are in Christ Jesus, and You can meet us with joy in any circumstance or season that we find ourselves in. And Lord, in light of that, help us to lie down in peace and sleep, knowing that our lives are in Your hands and our souls are eternally secure because of the blood of Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.